Welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the endocrine module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and the operation or topic we'll be covering today is all about the adrenal gland. So I've thought a lot about how to structure this particular episode. I think what I'm going to do is talk about an adrenal incidentaloma, and we're going to go into the workup of one of those. And then during the episode, we're going to take some segues into the specific functional tumors that you might find when investigating an adrenal incidentaloma. So firstly, what is an adrenal incidentaloma? This term is used when you have a incidentally identified adrenal mass, which is more than one centimeter found on radiological examination for a completely unrelated condition. And about 5% of abdominal CTs will identify an adrenal incidentaloma. The incidence of this increases with age and the majority of these lesions found are benign, non-functioning adenomas. The main basis of workup of these lesions is twofold. So firstly, you want to identify tumors or lesions that are potentially malignant. And secondly, you want to identify those that are harmful or symptomatic because they secrete a hormone. So is this lesion functioning? And we'll talk a bit in this episode about how to actually determine those two things. What are the differential diagnoses of an adrenal incidentaloma? In general, they can be divided up into benign and malignant causes. And if you remember from the first episode in our endocrine module, the adrenal gland has both a cortex and a medulla. So tumors could be either considered cortical or medullary in origin. So in terms of benign adrenal nodules, you can get benign cortical tumors. So this includes non-functional adenomas, which are the most common, functional adenomas, which can secrete steroids, which is called Cushing syndrome, or can secrete mineralocorticoids, which is called Cons syndrome. And then other benign tumors include adrenal myelolipomas and adrenal cysts. Other rarer things include adrenal abscesses, hemangiomas, and granulomatous disease, such as TB or histoplasmosis. Benign lesions coming from the medulla include pheochromocytomas and ganglioneuromas. Talking about malignant causes of adrenal masses, the cortical Causes include adrenocortical cancer, which is a very rare type of malignancy we'll mention later in the episode, and also adrenal metastases, with the most common causes being melanoma, renal cell cancer, and HCC, but other common tumors such as colorectal cancers and breast cancers can also spread to the adrenal. 
And the malignant tumor of the medulla is a metastatic pheochromocytoma. If you had a patient presenting with an adrenal incidentaloma, what will you need to ask about on history and examination? So on history, you're going to focus on any local symptoms of the lesion, any symptoms that might suggest a functional tumor, and any suggestion from the clinical history or their past history that this could be a malignant process. So in terms of functional symptoms, a large lesion in the adrenal gland may cause back pain or abdominal pain. If it's had an acute bleed into the lesion, then this could cause an acute pain. But because of the location of the adrenal gland in the retroperitoneum, it often is asymptomatic. So in terms of a suspicion that this may be a malignant lesion, you're going to want to know if the patient's had any weight loss or any unusual symptoms. You also want to ask about their past history of malignancy, if they've ever had a cancer in the past and what the treatment was for that, as adrenocortical metastases are much more common than a primary adrenocortical cancer. Moving on now to functional symptoms. The hormones that can be secreted include steroids, which I've mentioned is Cushing's disease, aldosterone, which is called primary hyperaldosteronism or CONS syndrome, catecholamines, which is called pheochromocytoma, and very rarely excess sex hormones can be secreted. So the symptoms of Cushing's disease include easy bruising, fatigue, weight gain, leg swelling, mood swings, and mental fogginess. Rather than jumping back and forth, I'll also mention the examination findings for Cushing syndrome here as well. So patients may have a moon face, weight gain with a buffalo hump, central obesity, and thin extremities, skin changes such as thin skin with easy bruising, acne, and purple striations. They can have a high blood pressure, abnormal hair growth, new development of diabetes, osteoporosis. They develop weakness and a proximal myopathy, cessation of menses in women, and breast development and impotence in men. The symptoms of primary hyperaldosteronism include muscle cramps, weakness or paresthesias, especially if there's associated hypokalemia. And on examination for somebody with primary hyperaldosteronism, these patients have resistant hypertension. And this is often despite multiple antihypertensive agents. They are found to have hypokalemia, acidosis and hypernatremia. Symptoms of pheochromocytoma include episodic spells of dizziness, palpitations, headache, diaphoresis or sweating, tremor, and anxiety, but they can also be asymptomatic. And on examination, these patients may have hypertension, which can be paroxysmal. They'll also have orthostatic hypotension, retinopathy, 
and can have signs of congestive cardiac failure and elevated blood sugar levels. And the rare cases of sex hormone excess can present with a history of infertility, um, hirsutism, acne, gynecomastia, and male pattern baldness. Some other things that are important to ask about on history is whether there's ever been any previous imaging of the abdomen. So you can compare to any previous imaging and get an idea about whether this has been stable over a long period of time or whether it's changed in size. And then the last thing to ask about is family history, because there are some genetic conditions that can predispose to the development of adrenal tumors specifically pheochromocytomas with MEN, von Hippel-Lindau, neurofibromatosis type 1, and familial paragangliomas or SDH gene mutations. So as I mentioned, the two things that you want to find out about an adrenal incidentaloma is if it's malignant and if it's functional. We've talked a bit about the history of patients and trying to determine these factors, but the last things that we have, I guess, that are available to us to determine this include blood tests and imaging. So let's talk a little bit about the blood tests or functional workup of an adrenal incidentaloma. I just also want to mention that in general, if an adrenal incidentaloma is less than one centimeter in size, they don't actually require further investigation. And actually, for it to be an incidentaloma, it's supposed to be more than one centimeter in size. So that's just something to be aware of. Okay, back to blood tests. So the first functional lesion I'm going to talk about is glucocorticoid excess or Cushing's disease. And Cushing's disease is a metabolic disorder caused by constant high levels of cortisol. There are different types of Cushing's disease which are classified depending on where the primary problem is. So what we're talking about is adrenal Cushing's syndrome and this is where there's excess production of cortisol by a tumor in the adrenal gland. And this counts for about 15% of Cushing's disease. And these tumors can either be benign, such as adrenal adenomas or hyperplasia, or they can be malignant. And for adrenocortical cancer, cortisol hormone is the most commonly secreted hormone for these tumors. So the other types of Cushing's disease include pituitary Cushing syndrome, so this is secretion of ACTH by the pituitary, by a pituitary tumor, leading to downstream increased cortisol production because of the increased ACTH production. And this accounts for about 70% of Cushing's disease. And the last one is Cushing's syndrome from an ectopic source, such as secretion of ACTH by another organ or usually a lung cancer. And this is about 5 to 10% of the time. So the tests that we use when we're looking at Cushing's syndrome have a few different intentions. The first of these is just a screening test. So if you have an adrenal incidentaloma and you don't have any symptoms, you can just do a screening test to rule out cortisol excess. There's a confirmatory test. So this is to confirm that 
if your screening test suggests that there is high cortisol, that you have to confirm it and say there definitely is excess cortisol secretion. And then the last reason we would do a test is to try to localize where the problem is. So which of those different types I just talked about is actually happening in this case. So the screening test that's done for Cushing syndrome is a one milligram dexamethasone suppression test, or you can use a midnight salivary cortisol, but I'm in the exam going to use a one milligram dexamethasone suppression test. And this is a test where you have to give the patient a prescription for dexamethasone, one milligram, and they come in 0.5 milligram tablets. So you have to ask for two tablets and you tell the patient to take this one milligram of dexamethasone at 11 p.m. and you give them a blood slip for a cortisol level which needs to be taken at 8 a.m. In general, dexamethasone should decrease the level of cortisol produced. So if you have an elevated cortisol, despite giving them one milligram of dexamethasone at 11 p.m., then this is a positive screening test. If this is positive, then you need to do the confirmatory test, which is a 24-hour urinary cortisol level. So the patient has to collect their urine for 24 hours and the total cortisol is measured. So once you've confirmed that the patient has excess cortisol, you need to then localize the site of the excess cortisol production. So this involves measuring the ACTH level because there is a feedback system. If the cortisol is high and the primary problem is in the adrenal gland, then the ACTH level should be suppressed. If the ACTH level is high, then that tells you that there's going to be either a pituitary or an ectopic ACTH producing problem. And then the test that you use to determine which of those two things it is, is the high dose dexamethasone suppressant test. This is the same as the low dose in that you give the patient dexamethasone at 11 p.m., but you give them eight milligrams of dexamethasone, and then you test their cortisol level at 8 a.m. The idea of this test is to differentiate between a pituitary ACTH increase in production versus ectopic. And the idea is that with a really high dose of dexamethasone, if it's coming from the pituitary, there should be some partial or even full suppression of ACTH production with a high dose dexamethasone suppression test. So if the morning cortisol is suppressed with the high dose test, it's probably going to be a pituitary lesion producing ACTH. If it isn't suppressed, then it's probably going to be an ectopic cause like a lung cancer and you would go looking for that with a CT chest, for example. The next functional lesion to talk about is a pheochromocytoma. So what is a pheochromocytoma? This is a catecholamine-secreting tumour. And it arises from the chromaffin cells of the adrenal medulla. Pheochromocytomas are very rare, and they love to talk about the rule of tens with these tumors. So 10% of pheos are bilateral, 10% are extra adrenal, and when they're not found in the adrenal gland, they're actually called paragangliomas, and they can occur anywhere along the sympathetic chain. 
Um, but the most common position is at the bifurcation of the aorta at the organ of Zucker candle. 10% are familial, so associated with familial syndromes. And I mentioned what those were earlier. So MEN syndrome, von Hippel-Lindau, neurofibromatosis type 1, and familial paraganglioma, which is a STH gene mutation. 10% are found in kids. 10% are malignant. And 10% are not associated with hypertension. As I've mentioned, pheos can secrete catecholamines, which include adrenaline, noradrenaline, and dopamine. And an important thing to note is that pheochromocytomas produce adrenaline because of the presence of an enzyme in the medulla of the adrenal, PNMT, whilst paragangliomas, where there isn't this enzyme, can only secrete noradrenaline. So how do we screen for and confirm the presence of a pheochromocytoma? So the screening test I'm going to say that I will use in the exam is plasma metanephrines. And metanephrines are the inactive metabolites of adrenaline and noradrenaline. And this includes metanephrine, normetanephrine, and 5-methoxytyramine. And so you can test for increased levels of these metabolites in the blood. But this is just a screening test. So if this is positive, then you have to confirm the presence of increased catecholamines with a 24-hour urinary catecholamine level. And so this is measuring adrenaline, noradrenaline, and dopamine. Once you've determined that the levels are increased, you then need to localize where the pheochromocytoma is, because as I've mentioned, it can be in the adrenal gland, and there's two of those, and also whether it's a paraganglioma and is not in the adrenal. And so you can do this with a dedicated CT adrenal, which we'll talk about later, but you can also use other imaging such as MIBG scintigraphy or even a dotatate PET scan because pheochromocytomas are actually a neuroendocrine tumor. I think I'll talk a little bit more about these scans in the imaging part of this podcast. The other thing to mention for pheochromocytoma is that because they do have a familial association, you should consider genetic testing in patients with a personal or family history of a known mutation, as well as patients who are young, so less than 50, if it's a malignant pheochromocytoma, if it's multifocal, if there's a family history of pheos or paragangliomas, or if there's other tumors that could be associated with succinate dehydrogenase or SDH mutations, such as gastric gists, renal cell carcinomas, and pituitary adenomas. And if you suspect that there is a genetic syndrome, then you want to also screen for other tumors. So um, with MEN, you're going to be testing for PTH, calcium, vitamin D, check for urinary cytology for a renal cell carcinoma, perform fundoscopy and get a thyroid ultrasound. Okay, let's talk about primary hyperaldosteronism. Primary hyperaldosteronism is also known as Kohn's syndrome, and the mean age of diagnosis is about 50 years old. About 60% of the time, Kohn's is due to a unilateral aldosterone-producing adenoma, 
but in the remaining percent of the time, it's due to bilateral adrenal hyperplasia. It's super rare, but you can also get aldosterone-producing adrenocortical cancers or familial hyperaldosteronism. So again, there are tests you can do as screening tests to confirm the diagnosis and then to localize the lesion. So again, for the exam, the screening tests I'm going to do are a blood pressure, potassium level, and an aldosterone to renin ratio, which is a blood test you can do. The aldosterone to renin ratio needs to be done off their interfering medications, including spironolactone, ACE inhibitors, diuretics, and beta-adrenergic blockers. If these screening tests suggest that there is primary hyperaldosteronism, then the confirmatory test that I've seen done at my institution is an admission for a saline or sodium loading. So they admit patients and give them two to three liters of isotonic saline for four to six hours, and then they measure the plasma aldosterone level. The plasma aldosterone levels in a normal individual given a salt load should be suppressed. So if they aren't suppressed, then that suggests that there is in fact primary hyperaldosteronism. The alternative to this test is an oral salt loading protocol where patients take quite a lot of sodium chloride for five days and you have to test a number of different things including 24-hour urinary aldosterone, sodium, potassium and creatinine excretion, as well as the serum aldosterone and aldosterone to renin ratio. And the last alternative test is a fludrocortisone suppression test, which can be done to confirm hyperaldosteronism, especially if they're on a lot of antihypertensives. So the renin to aldosterone ratio is more difficult to interpret. And this is a five-day admission to hospital where they give fludrocortisone orally 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams every six hours with also giving the patient sodium chloride and potassium. And this should suppress their serum aldosterone level and lead to urinary aldosterone excretion of less than 12 micrograms per day. So if there is no suppression of aldosterone or higher excretion levels in the urine, then that suggests primary hyperaldosteronism. The interesting thing about Conn syndrome is that for the localization test, these patients need adrenal venous sampling because a adenoma producing aldosterone can be quite small. So just because they have an incidentaloma on one side, this doesn't mean that that is the side that is secreting the aldosterone. And so you may take out the wrong side and still have the problem and then have to take out both adrenals, which would be a bit of a disaster. And this came up in the pathophysiology exam a couple of years ago. They were asking how you would localize a cons tumor. So just be aware, you need to do adrenal venous sampling. And this is an invasive test where they basically sample the venous blood that drains on either side from the adrenal glands to identify where the area is that has the high levels of aldosterone. And just very briefly, for sex hormone excess, you really only do testing for this if the patient has history or examination findings that would suggest this as it's quite rare. 
And the screening test is plasma DHEAs, which stands for dehydroepiandosterone. And this is a hormone that is turned into both male and female sex hormones and is secreted by the adrenal glands. And you can also do a 24-hour urine collection for 17-hydroxysteroid and ketosteroid levels. Let's spend some time talking about imaging adrenal lesions. So the purpose of imaging, firstly, is to determine whether or not a lesion may be malignant or not. And secondly, it can help to localize a functional lesion. So let's start by talking about imaging to determine if something is malignant or not. CT is the test of choice. And there's a number of different CT phases that you can do. And the Hounsfield units, as well as the washout characteristics of the lesion, help to determine what the lesion may be, whether that's benign or malignant. So the first CT you can do is a non-contrast CT scan. If the Hounsfield units are zero, this pretty much always excludes this being a cancer. If the Hounsfield units are less than 10, then this suggests that there's a high lipid content in the lesion and suggests that this is a lipid-rich adenoma. And if this is found on a CT non-contrast, then you don't need to go on and do multi-phase imaging to look at the washout. If the Hounsfield units are greater than 10, then the differentials include a lipid-poor adenoma or a malignancy. And so you need to do washout studies to determine what this actually is. So in terms of the washout studies, what I mean is that we do a CT scan, adrenal protocol. And so this is a CT scan with multi-phase contrast. So a non-contrast, arterial, portal venous and delayed phase with fine slices through the adrenal glands. And we measure the washout of the nodule. The washout can be described as either an absolute washout or a relative washout. And the absolute washout looks at the portal venous delayed and non-enhanced Hounsfield units. So you need a non-contrast scan to get the absolute washout. But the relative washout just looks at the portal venous and delayed phases. So you don't need a non-contrast for that. If the absolute washout is more than 60%, then this tells you that this is probably a benign lesion. If the absolute washout is less than 60%, then this is probably going to be a carcinoma or a metastasis. And the way I like to remember this is that tumors are vascular and they have disorganized blood vessels. So the contrast will be taken up, but then it's going to leak out into the tissues and not wash out very well because a tumor isn't made very well. I don't know if that helps you at all, but that's how I remember it. And then in terms of relative washout, if the relative washout is more than 40, then it's probably an adenoma. But if it's less than 40, then this is suggestive of an adrenal carcinoma or a metastasis. There are some other characteristics, though, that suggest malignancy that don't have to do with the washout. So if the lesion is quite heterogeneous, if it has quite an irregular shape and margins, 
if there's hemorrhage in the lesion, invasion, and the size of the lesion. So if the lesion is less than four centimeters, then there's a very low chance of it being a malignancy, so about a 2% risk. If it's four to six centimeters, then about a 6% risk of malignancy. And if it's more than six centimeters, the risk of malignancy is more than 25%. So recently we had a case of adrenocortical cancer at my institution and the washout was pretty good. So there was more than 60% absolute washout. But the tumor was very large, it was six centimeters, and it was quite heterogeneous. And the patient had Cushing syndrome, which is the most common hormone secreted by adrenocortical cancer, and in the end also had evidence of metastases. But I was really confused why the washout was good, but it was still an ACC. And really those other features, the size and the heterogeneity of the tumor, are more specific for adrenocortical cancer than washout. I'm just going to spend a little bit of time talking about the localization imaging tests we can do to localize functional tumors or lesions. The first one I've mentioned was Cushing's disease. And really the localization is in testing to make sure that it's not a pituitary or an ectopic secretion of ACTH causing it. So making sure it's an adrenal lesion. And then the imaging tests that demonstrate an adrenal adenoma, so those tests we just talked about, will tell you where the adenoma is. The next tumor was a pheochromocytoma. So again, you would do a CT adrenal protocol and pheochromocytomas pretty much don't wash out and they have super high Hanfield units, like more than 100, which helps to differentiate them from adenomas. They can have variable appearance due to necrosis, calcifications, cysts, or lipid degeneration, but in general, don't wash out and have high Hounsfield units. You can also do an iodine-131-MIBG scintigraphy scan, and this can be useful to rule out an extramedullary pheochromocytoma and localize what side the pheo is on. MIBG, and I'm not going to pronounce this very well, stands for meta-iodobenzylguanidine, which is a structural analog of noradrenaline, and it's not taken up by normal adrenal medullary tissue. And it's a scan that's done in nuclear medicine um, where you do a whole body imaging at 24 and 72 hours after the MIBG is administered, and it has quite a high sensitivity and specificity for detecting pheochromocytoma. You can also do an MRI of the adrenal glands to find a lesion and also a nuclear medicine dotatate PET scan or octreotide PET scan because as I've mentioned earlier, pheochromocytomas are a type of neuroendocrine tumor. In terms of FDG PET, both adrenocortical cancers, pheochromocytomas and metastases are hot on FDG PET. So that doesn't really help you differentiate what the thing is, but it may help you localize a pheochromocytoma. And the last one I mentioned was primary hyperaldosteronism or CONS syndrome. And as I've mentioned, these 
need venous sampling to lateralize which side the hyperaldosterone is coming from. And they look at the aldosterone to cortisol ratio. And if the AC ratio is more than four, it's likely due to an aldosterone secreting tumor on that side. But if it's less than four bilaterally, then it's more likely to be due to a bilateral adrenal hyperplasia. Okay, so we've made it all the way to management of adrenal tumors or adrenal incidentalomas. A general summary I quite liked was that if a non-contrast CT is consistent with a benign adrenal mass, so less than 10 Hounsfield units, that's homogenous and less than four centimeters, and there's a negative metabolic workup, then you don't need any surgery and you may consider an interval scan to make sure it doesn't change in size, but then you can probably sign off and say this is a benign non-functional lesion. You should do an adrenalectomy if a tumor is more than four centimeters in size, if it's suspicious that it might be a malignancy on your imaging and workup, and if it is functional. And whether you do a laparoscopic or an open operation, really does depend on the size. So if it's less than six centimeters, probably laparoscopic's okay. If it's more than six centimeters, open. Or if you think this is going to be malignant in the exam, just say that you would go open. Obviously, that was a broad generalization and you need to consider the patient's age and general health when you're determining how you're going to manage these lesions. And if patients have a short life expectancy and say a four centimeter benign looking lesion that's non-functional, you may not operate on them. But if they were young, then you might operate more frequently for those tumors. So just make sure you're considering the individual patient. I thought I might talk a little bit next about some of the perioperative management considerations for the different types of functional lesions. So let's start again with Cushing's syndrome. So patients with Cushing's syndrome should be offered an operation if they have high cortisol secretion and if they have the presence of at least two comorbidities related to the cortisol excess, such as osteoporosis, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and obesity. Preoperatively, for patients with cortisol excess, you have to make sure you give them stress dose steroids so that they don't go into an adrenal crisis. Usually during a stressful situation like surgery, the body would make more stress hormones to help the body deal with that stress. But in patients who have not normally functioning adrenal glands, they don't do this. And so you have to supplement that with intravenous steroids, usually 50 to 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone intravenously, eight hourly. And some symptoms of adrenal crisis include hypotension, tachycardia, high fevers, confusion, and even coma. So really important to give stress dose steroids. The next functional tumor is a pheochromocytoma, and surgery should be offered to all patients with pheochromocytoma due to the risk of sudden death. Preoperatively, they love talking about what you're going to do to optimize these patients. And this should be a multidisciplinary approach with an endocrinologist in order to avoid complications of the surgery. 
So firstly, preoperatively, you're going to establish the patient on an alpha blocker. And in Australia, usually this is phenoxybenzamine. And you start with 10 milligrams orally and you titrate this up until patients have postural hypotension and a stuffy nose. So you basically titrate it up until they can't tolerate it anymore. And this is a non-selective irreversible alpha blocker. You have to make sure that you tell patients to drink lots and lots of water as it causes vasodilation. Once you have the patient established on an alpha blocker, you can then introduce a beta blocker. And you should add this if there's persistent tachycardia. Patients should definitely only have the beta blocker started after they are established on the alpha blocker. Otherwise, you get an unopposed alpha adrenergic stimulation, which leads to a hypertensive crisis and congestive cardiac failure. Preoperatively, on the day of surgery, you want to prehydrate the patient, so load them with intravenous therapy preoperatively, and also give magnesium intraoperatively to prevent arrhythmias. Intraoperatively, you need to have really close communication with the anaesthetists, and the anaesthetists need to have noradrenaline, phentolamine and adrenergic agents available for after the tumor is removed. And these patients can have really labile blood pressures, so hypotension, hypertension throughout the operation. And phenoxybenzamine can cause hypotension postoperatively due to its long mechanism of action. So you may need to stop the phenoxybenzamine prior on the night before the operation. It's usually given as a BD dose. The other thing they talk about is securing the vein early before manipulating the gland to make sure that you're not getting surges of catecholamines released into the system. I don't know how true that is because I've also heard endocrine surgeons say it doesn't make any difference, but probably something nice to mention you would do in the exam and that until you've clipped the vein, you have minimal handling of the pheochromocytoma and making sure that you retrieve it in an endocatch bag so there's no tumor spillage. So last but not least is primary hyperaldosteronism or CONS syndrome. These patients are hypertensive and have low potassium preoperatively. So you need to manage their blood pressure with medical management, and this may require multimodal antihypertensives. And you also need to replace their electrolytes. And this might require quite aggressive potassium replacement, but needs to be done cautiously because these patients are often also on spironolactone. And as I've mentioned, you're going to do venous sampling to localize the tumor. If patients have bilateral disease, then surgery is not the answer for these patients. So if they have a bilateral hyperplasia leading to con syndrome these patients need to be managed medically with aldosterone receptor antagonists by the endocrinologists let's take a little segue now into adrenocortical cancers these are super rare And most patients will present with symptoms due to the tumor being very large and local mass effect. And about 60% of patients will present with hormone-related symptoms. So 45% will have glucocorticoid excess alone, so Cushing syndrome. 25% will have both glucocorticoids and androgen excess. And the minority will have aldosterone secretion. 
They have a really poor prognosis with about 40% of patients presenting with metastases at diagnosis. And some of these will be identified asymptomatically as adrenal incidentalomas. They can occur at any age, but the most common time is in the 40 to 50-year-old age bracket. And most of them are sporadic, but a small percentage will be related to genetic syndromes, such as Lee-Fraumeni, Beckwith-Weidman syndrome, which is an alteration in the IGF-2 gene, familial adenomatous polyposis syndrome with APC gene mutation, Lynch syndrome, and MEN1. Diagnosis, as I've already alluded to, tends to be made on imaging with a heterogeneous and large adrenal tumour with irregular borders and areas of necrosis and hemorrhage. Typically, on the non-contrast scan, it'll be more than 20 Hounsfield units in density and will have reduced washout. More than 90% of adrenocortical cancers are more than 6 centimetres in size on presentation. Because this is a tumour, we need to talk about staging. So patients will be staged with a CT chest abdo pelvis and often also with a PET scan. And the most common site of metastases are the lung, liver, lymph nodes, peritoneal metastases, and bone. And you would do a biochemical workup for these tumors as well. As I've mentioned, a lot of them are quite uh, hormonally active with Cushing syndrome being most common. There is a TNM staging system for adrenocortical cancer. The T stage is based on size. So T1 is less than five centimeters with no invasion. T2 is more than 5 centimetres with no invasion. T3 is any size but local invasion. And T4 is any size but locally invading the adjacent organs. And N1 is node positive and M1 is distant metastases. The treatment of adrenal cortical cancer depends on patient and tumour factors. So patient fitness is an important consideration. Tumor factors depend on whether the tumor is localized or metastatic. So if it's localized, then the principles of management are an R0 resection with on-block resection of any involved adjacent organs and if there's invasion into the IVC, this is also considered regional disease and consideration should be given to resection and thrombectomy, which sounds terrifying. For adrenocortical cancer, the operation needs to be open. So laparoscopic options are not relevant here because there's been a number of studies that have shown an unacceptable local recurrence rate with laparoscopic surgery thought to potentially be due to spillage of tumor cells at the time of the surgery. So an open operation with careful dissection is the standard of care. These tumors are super rare. So what to do with them after resection is not 100% clear. If they are low risk tumor and you have clear margins and there's no metastases, then surgical follow-up or surveillance may be appropriate. But if there's any potentially high-risk features, such as it's a stage 3, so there's local invasion or nodes, or if the KI67 index is high, more than 10%, then you might consider adjuvant therapy, which could include mitotane or radiotherapy. 
In terms of patients who have metastatic disease, it's again a little bit complex and I think the treatment would need to be individualized to the person because these are such rare tumors. But options include systemic treatments, surgery and debulking, local therapies, especially to liver metastases, and radiotherapy. Just briefly to talk about mitotain, this is a systemic treatment that can be used for adrenocortical cancers. It's a steroidogenesis inhibitor and cytotoxic anti-neoplastic medication. So basically that means it's cytotoxic to the adrenal and also reduces steroid hypersecretion by tumor cells. Patients develop adrenal insufficiency with mitotain, so it's a pretty horrible drug to be on, and they often require glucocorticoid and mineral corticoid replacement. And it's used both in high-risk resected disease, as I've mentioned, and also if there's residual disease or metastases. Cytotoxic chemotherapy is also used for adrenocortical cancer, and typically this is etoposide, doxorubicin, and cisplatin, which is often combined with mitotain. Radiotherapy is a little bit controversial. It can be used in patients with high risk of local recurrence, um, so high-risk tumor features or an R1 or R2 resection, or patients who haven't had a resection to the local tumor or the primary. And it can also be used in patients with stage 3 disease with an advanced local tumour or lymph nodes. And usually it's started pretty soon after treatment. It can also be used, as I just sort of mentioned, as a definitive treatment for unresectable disease, so high-dose radiotherapy to the tumour to try to primarily treat a tumour. But if you can resect it, that's still preferred. And then local regional therapies are also used in adrenocortical cancer. It's usually used in combination with mitotain and systemic chemotherapy. And things like radiofrequency or microwave ablation can be used for liver, lung or bone metastases and also TACE for hepatic metastases. And then the last thing to mention is that ketoconazole, again, can be used to treat the cortisol hypersecretion. There's also a scoring system, I don't know whether we would need to know, called the WIES score. And this is a diagnostic as well as prognostic pathological score used by looking microscopically at the tumor. So it diagnoses adrenocortical cancer if there's a score of three or more and also helps to predict recurrence or likelihood of recurrence. So they look at the nuclear grade of the tumor um, they look at the mitoses, whether there's presence of clear cells, whether there's a diffuse architecture, necrosis, venous, sinusoidal, and capsular invasion. And the KI67 index is often used with this. And if there's more than 5%, then it's a powerful prognostic marker of recurrence risk. In general, the prognosis for adrenocortical cancer is very poor and the mean survival is somewhere between 22 and 47 months. But in survival overall is improved if you can do an R0 resection. But even with complete resection, local recurrence is common and about 85% of patients will either have a local recurrence or metastatic disease develop.
So to round out this episode, I'm very briefly going to talk about surgery for adrenal lesions. As I've mentioned, surgery is indicated in any patient with a functional hormonally active adrenal tumor. If the tumor's more than four centimeters in size, I haven't talked about this very much, but if the tumor is enlarging on serial or surveillance imaging that you do for a borderline non-functional tumor, or if you suspect a malignancy because of the imaging characteristics, these patients should have an operation. And there's a number of different surgical options, which for some reason they love to talk about in the exam. So the options include laparoscopic, and you can do a laparoscopic operation transperitoneally, like we do most abdominal surgery, or retroperitoneally, and it's called retroperitoneoscopic surgery. You can also do an open operation, which can be done transabdominal or retroperitoneal. And when you would do one or the other um, is basically indicated by the size and what the tumor is. So an open operation I've alluded to should be done for a really large tumor. So definitely if it's more than six centimeters. And also if you're concerned that it's going to be an adrenocortical carcinoma. Because there's much higher local recurrence rates, tumors are soft and friable and can locally invade, so the tissue planes may be less obvious in a laparoscopic operation. And then laparoscopy can be used for functional tumors, especially if they're less than six centimeters in size. But some people would say if it's not a cancer that you could potentially do laparoscopic for tumors that are even larger than six centimeters in size. Other things that you might consider that may influence your decision is if a patient has a battle-scarred abdomen, you may want to avoid going through the abdomen due to adhesions, and that may influence your um, whether you do a laparoscopic anterior or a retroperitoneoscopic approach. Operations on the left or the right adrenal are completely different. They're two totally different operations. So an operation on the right adrenal is really a dissection on the inferior vena cava. And most people would do a medial to lateral dissection of the gland. The left adrenal gland is really a dissection of the spleen and the tail of the pancreas. And the key landmarks are the tail of pancreas and the inferior phrenic vein. And that's it for today's episode on the adrenal. Please remember to rate the podcast, subscribe, and also please leave me a review either on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, or on my social media pages. I love reading your reviews and getting feedback. And also when you subscribe and leave a review, it makes it easier for others to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at firstincision. Happy studying!